if you have a Bible, you can open up to Luke 2. Luke 2 is where we're going to be. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, you can grab one of the ones that are around you. You can open up to the bookmark, and that should take you to Luke 2. Um, those of you who are regular attenders here might say, why are we in Luke? Tim, we've been in Acts for like eight months. Did you get lost? I didn't. Um, a couple in our congregation, Amy and Wayne actually, were talking about the sermon series. As I know everybody does, you go home and you just talk about the sermon. I understand. Uh, and they were talking about our sermon series as we've been walking through the book of Acts. And Wayne made the point that Acts and Luke are connected, right? They have the same author. It's, it's a two-volume set. Right? Even in the beginning of Acts, Luke makes mention, as I last wrote to you, dear Theophilus, as, as I wrote in my previous letter to you, they're connected. And so while this isn't like the MCU, right? you, don't have to, you don't have to have read all of Luke to understand Acts, there is connection points. There are bridges that are crossed between the two. Luke really informs and answers the question in the book of Acts, the question, why? Why did the apostles go from hiding in the upper room to standing before government authorities under threat of death, refusing to stop preaching the gospel? Why do hundreds and thousands in a very short window convert to Christianity? Many of them leaving what would have been homes and families, their inheritance, they leave everything to join this new way. Why would someone like Paul, who was set for life as a Pharisee, why would he leave the fame and the money and the power and the authority and spend his life being chased and beaten and rejected? Bringing it even to today, why would parents, why would we come up here and publicly declare that in a time and place when all of truth is up for debate and negotiable, when Christianity is seen as this ancient set of beliefs that's just rules and regulations, why would we say that not only do we believe it, but we want our kids to believe it, and we want Ed to do everything in our power to point our kids toward Jesus and the gospel in hopes that they might believe as well. What is it about Jesus and this gospel message that could do all of that and so much more? It's because the gospel is light in the darkness. It's because the gospel is hope for the hopeless. It's because the gospel is the inclusion for the outcast. And Luke speaks to this reality, and so as I said, we've been walking through the book of Acts for most of this year, and we're about halfway through the book, and so I thought it'd be a good time to stop and really consider what led to the events of this book of, uh, this book of Acts. Because every day is a good day to have your Bibles open. Today's a really good day to have your Bibles open. We're going to do a bunch of jumping around in Luke. Um, so I'm going to pray, and then uh, we're going to jump in to, to Luke. So uh, please bow your heads and pray with me. God, we thank you for today. We thank you for days like this where we get to celebrate and we get to encourage each other and rejoice and enjoy what you are doing. Enjoy the blessings, the tangible, physical, obvious, observable blessings you give to us. Things like kids added to families. God, we pray for the kids of our church. We pray for Grace Place. We pray for the volunteers, the leaders who are teaching them. God, that they would enjoy that time that they would take seriously that time, that they would be filled with an extra amount of energy and joy and patience and wisdom in how they teach and reveal you and your truths to these kids. God, we pray that you would save them at an early age, that they might walk with you for many, many years. God, we pray for this church. We pray that you, uh, we thank you that you have bound us together, that you have continued to be faithful to this place for so many years, for so many decades. 
God, I pray that you would continue to bind us together, strengthen our relationship, strengthen us as we continue to seek to be this lighthouse in Roscoe Village and Chicago and the world. God, we pray for First Free Church in Andersonville and Pastor Matt, that you would continue to strengthen them and raise up new leaders. And, and Lord, as they continue to find new ways to reach into a hard neighborhood, Lord, that you would give them grace and peace and mercy as they reach out to their neighbors. God, we pray for our neighbors in Roscoe Village. We pray for opportunities and inroads to serve and to love and to care for the people of this neighborhood, that they might come to see that there is hope to be had, that there is joy and life to be had in following you. God, as we open your word this morning, I pray that as I preach, that we would be glorifying you, that you would remind us of why it is we're here today. Because whether we are here because this is just what we do on a Sunday or we're here as an invitation or we're here for a friend or a family member, God, we are here because you orchestrated these things. And so, Lord, as I preach, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be glorifying to you. We pray these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen. So like I said, we're going to do some hopping around today. You're going to, we're going to start in Luke 2, and we're going to go uh, chronologically. So you, you're just going to be able to flip the pages. Um, but before we get to Luke 2, I do want to talk a little bit about what, what did Jesus actually preach? As we talk about the gospel, why is it such a popular message at that time? Because right from the beginning, Jesus set the tone early in his ministry days. After going through the temptations, he goes into the wilderness, and he spends that time being tempted by Satan as he's fasting. After that happens, Jesus goes to Nazareth, and he goes to the temple, and he, he unrolls the scroll for that day, and the scroll for that day happens to be Isaiah 61, and it talks about the anointed one, the Messiah, would come to proclaim good news to the poor, liberty to the captive, sight to the blind, freedom to the oppressed, proclaim the Lord's favor, and then Jesus sits down, and with all eyes on him, he says, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing today, meaning I'm the one. I'm the one the prophet was writing about. I'm the one who fulfills that. He was telling the people that this is what he came to do, to restore and renew and reverse and reconcile what sin has broken on this earth. He would do that through his ministry, through things like casting out demons and healing the thousands at a time and, and feeding thousands at a time and giving glimpses of the kingdom of God, which would bring about the full and complete reign of Jesus Christ. Jesus even says at the end of chapter 4 of Luke, he says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. Jesus came to deliver good news. His purpose was to preach the good news of the kingdom of God to people, to tell them the kingdom of God was at hand. His arrival and his subsequent death and resurrection initiates that kingdom on earth. The good news of the kingdom is that the king has come to lead and to rule. He does so with a power that supersedes any earthly king or political leader that has come before him or has ever come since. This king can say to a paralytic man in Luke 5, your sins are forgiven. He declares that his goal was not to call the righteous but the unrighteous, to have them turn away from what they knew and turn toward God and find hope and grace and forgiveness and new life. There's a security and a strength in this countercultural message of the gospel. It's a message of protection, of vindication, of newness and opportunity. It appeals to all people. It develops a crowd because all people from all walks of life are attracted to the idea that there's something better available. 
There's something better for the future and for the now. Jesus preached a message that told people that not only did God care about them, not only did God know them, but God was pursuing them. Instead of the lifeless rules and regulations, the impersonal rituals that had become part of Judaism, Jesus spoke of a God who actively pursues people. And not just the good people, the clean and nice people, the easy to love people, but the lost and the helpless, the ones that society has said, we're done with you. The ones that society has written off and ignored. It was a message aimed for all people, and we see all sorts of people come to know the gospel. What Jesus preached was relationship. It was potential. It was engaging. It was not built on what you could do, had to do, was going to do, but rather on receiving help from him. It was a message that acknowledged, look, you're tired. You're broken. You're beaten up. You're exhausted by this world. I understand that. Let me help you lighten the load. Instead of putting on more expectations and more requirements and that constant burden of try harder, do better, just accomplish more and you'll be fine, the gospel is light in the darkness. I told you to go to Luke 2. We see when Jesus was born, as I said, it's kind of fitting for this morning. When Jesus was born, his parents adhered to the tradition and the customs of the time. And so when he was about 40 days old, they took him to the temple to dedicate him, to pray over him. And at that time in the, in the city, there was a man named Simeon. Simeon was known to be a righteous and devout man, a man dedicated on focusing and focused on loving and serving God and loving and serving others. At some point in his relationship with God, Simeon is told by God that he would not die until he saw the Christ, the promised Messiah, the fulfillment of God's promise to the Jewish people, the one that they had been clinging to for hundreds, thousands of years, that one day this Messiah was going to come, this set-apart one was going to come, and he was going to go to war with Satan, he was going to restore Israel, he was going to do things to help and redeem God's people. And they longed for that day, and they clamored for that day. And Simeon is told, you're going to see him. That day is coming. That promised Messiah is coming. And so Simeon knew a day was coming when he would get to meet that one. In my head, we don't know a lot about Simeon. In my head, he's older. He's, he's hanging on, kind of just driven by this promise from God. He's regularly showing up to the temple. He's serving. He's worshiping. He's engaging with his community. And all the while, he's just keeping his eyes open. Because he doesn't know who or when or where, but he knows that day is coming. And so he's constantly watching, constantly paying attention, constantly just waiting for that day. And then one day, Mary and Joseph bring in this baby into the temple. And this one day becomes that day for Simeon. Skip down to verse 26 of chapter 2. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and for glory to your people, Israel. The Holy Spirit nudges Simeon. He says, Simeon, it's time. You need to go to the temple. And so Simeon adheres. He listens. He doesn't probably know why or what he's doing there, but he goes. And he sees this family come in, and he approaches them. And the Holy Spirit clearly told him, 
that baby is the baby, the one. And I assume he asked Mary, hey, can I hold the baby? I don't think he like just took, her out of, took him out of her arms. But he, it's not lost on him because he knows exactly who he's holding. Simeon expresses his gratitude and worship to God for this opportunity, the peace that overwhelms him. He knew that his eyes were seeing God's salvation for all people in this baby. In fact, the last thing he says, he calls Jesus a light of revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. That statement is a reference to Isaiah 49.6, which says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant and raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the persevered of, Is the persevered of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. It's the same verse that Paul uses in his speech in Acts 13 in Pisidia, not only showing the continuity of Luke's gospel and the book of Acts, that there's a line there that, yes, this prophecy happens hundreds, thousands of years ago. And then here Simeon responds and says, this is the fulfillment of that prophecy. And then Paul later on will say, yeah, that was the fulfillment of that prophecy. But it shows that Jesus and God was paying attention, that God had a plan. This wasn't happenstance or circumstances. This was a planned attack. Jesus is the light of the world, the light that illuminates and expels the darkness because there is no darkness in God at all. The gospel is a light in the darkness, even still today. It illuminates the love and mercy and grace of God to all people, regardless of your background. It illuminates the reality that we are in need of a savior. Instead of wandering in the darkness, the gospel reveals the pitfalls and potential issues hidden in the shadows that we may stumble upon. It exposes the evils of our hearts and minds and the world around us, and it points us to the help that we need. It's a light that shines and illuminates the salvation provided to us by faith in Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection. The gospel is a light in the darkness. It shows us the problem. It shows us our sin, and it shows us how to avoid the consequences of it and be saved from it through faith in Christ. Because the gospel is a light in the darkness. The gospel is not only a light in the darkness, but it is also hope for the hopeless. I want you to flip over. You're going to go to Luke 8. All you got to do is flip a couple of pages. Go to Luke 8. You're going to go down to verse 40. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. For he had only a daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. In just those few pages that we flipped, Jesus' reputation is growing. He's traveling, he's performing miracles, he's teaching, and, and people are following, people are noticing him. He's got a reputation, the crowds are getting bigger and bigger, everyone wants to be around him. And through the crowd on this day comes a leader of the local synagogue, a man named Jairus. The synagogue leaders, they weren't rabbis. They were kind of in charge. They were very important in local leadership. They were in charge of the synagogue, the logistics, and making sure everything ran smoothly. And so with that kind of role, he found himself in line. In general, the synagogue leaders would be in line with the rabbis, with the Pharisees, with the Jewish leadership. And if you know anything about the Gospels, you know that those guys are in the complete opposite and almost enemies of Jesus. They're constantly at odds with one another. And yet Jairus shows up. 
And not only does he show up, but he falls at the feet of Jesus in public, begging for Jesus for his help. Synagogue rulers were honored and respected. They were dignified and classy. They did not grovel or beg to anyone for anything, especially not in public like this. It shows the seriousness and desperation this man found himself because his only daughter, his 12-year-old daughter, was dying. We don't know anything about Jairus' personal faith. All we know is that this man is at this point desperate, and he knows that Jesus has power. He implores Jesus. He begs Jesus. Jairus knew that this man, Jesus, had a power and authority that no one else did. He knew that if Jesus would show up, his daughter would be okay. Whether or not he would admit it in that moment, Jairus had faith in Jesus. And Jesus in turn sees and hears the desperation, the faith that this man has in this moment. And because Jesus has come to serve and care for humanity, Jesus agrees to go with him. But on the way to Jairus' house, a holy interruption takes place. A woman who has a discharge of blood for 12 years shows up in the crowd. It says in verse 43 that she has spent everything, all of her life savings on doctors, and she has found no cure. She's been searching to find a cure. She was stuck and suffering and alone. Because not only was she sick, not only was she physically broken, but because of her disease, she was known as unclean. She wasn't allowed to be in the temple. She wasn't allowed to worship. She wasn't allowed to be other around, allowed to be around other people. Because on top of that, if she touched someone, that person would become unclean, and they wouldn't be able to go to temple. They wouldn't be able to be part of the community. So this sickness, not only is she sick, not only is she suffering, but she is isolated and alone. No one would be willing to spend time with her. She would live alone and disconnected from society. Just being in this crowd would be a huge risk and issue for her. But she somehow makes her way through the crowd. She gets up to Jesus. She comes up from behind him. And she touches his robe. She touches his garment. And she is immediately healed. But Jesus knew that it had happened. Go down to verse 42. Jesus went and the people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent her living on physicians, she would not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. And immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, someone touched me. For I perceive that power has gone out from me. She touches him and she's immediately healed. But Jesus knew that it happened. He feels power go out from him, whatever that means. She's satisfied with the results. She got what she wanted. She had faith that if I could just get close enough, if I could just touch even his robe, I would be healed. She knew. She, she had a plan and it worked. And now she is planning to just sneak away, but that's not how Jesus works. Jesus, in the midst of this crowd, wants to know who touched him. Peter says, Jesus, look at the crowd. Everyone is touching you. But Jesus knows there's something different about this touch. This emergency trip to Jairus' house gets stopped in its tracks so Jesus can have a moment with this woman. He asks who touched him. But it's Jesus. Doesn't he already know? I mean, he knows. So why ask the question? 
Because God is looking for relationship with us. He wants to give us an opportunity to step into the moment and step into the relationship with him. God wants to care for us. Jesus wanted to heal her. She didn't take power from him. If he didn't want to heal her, he wouldn't have healed her. All kinds of people are pressing on him. It doesn't say that any of them experienced a miracle or any kind of healing. And Jesus could have let this go. He could have let her slip away and sneak away, but he calls her forward. Because this is God showing, look, you matter. You matter as an individual to God. He cares about what you are going through. And so the unclean woman, she tries to hide and stay in the shadows, but eventually she comes forward. And she tells Jesus what had happened. And she does the same thing that Jairus did. She falls at the feet of Jesus to tell him. In verse 41, it said Jairus fell at the feet of Jesus out of fear for his daughter's life. Here in verse 47, the fear and trembling of this woman, she falls at the feet of Jesus, afraid of what might happen to her for what she has done. Two people who couldn't be more opposite, coming from different worlds entirely, both were afraid, and Jesus responds to both of them with kindness and grace. He gives comfort. He gives hope. He tells the woman in verse 48, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. It's a term of endearment, daughter, kindness, gentleness. There's no need for you to be afraid. Your faith has made you well. It wasn't magic. Jesus' garment wasn't a mystical lucky charm. It was her faith to get up and go search for Jesus. Her faith in Jesus' power that healed her. Her faith in him that led her to touch that garment. Faith leads to action. And he says, go in peace. You've been made well. Not just from your disease, but you are at peace with God. Jesus heals her body, yes, but also heals her relationship with God because of her faith. In the midst of this crowd, he stops everything to have this kind, compassionate moment with this woman. She is not only healed, but she finds forgiveness and grace and mercy from God. Her faith put in action is rewarded. But there's still the dying little girl. And while all of this is happening, someone comes up and tells Jairus his worst fear has come true. Your daughter has passed away. Think about how Jairus must have felt in that moment. This mix of sad and angry and frustrated and overwhelmed and shocked. I mean, if Jesus would have just kept walking, if he would have just gotten to her house, he could have saved her. I mean, doesn't God know about deadlines? Doesn't he know? I'm praying for this thing right now because I need him to act right now. Doesn't God know if this bill isn't paid today, if this test isn't passed, if this job is not offered now, if clarity is not given, everything will be ruined. God's timing is perfect. He is never slow to act. God does not waste time, his or yours. You can read the Gospels backwards and forwards. Jesus is never running anywhere because he's never late. When the messenger comes to tell Jairus his daughter has died, Jesus has a very interesting response in verse 50. Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear. Only believe and she will be well. Jairus, you had the faith to come to me in the first place. Do not lose heart now. Have faith. Have that same kind of faith that this bleeding woman had. Despite the situation you find yourself in right now, just believe. In this midst of this hopelessness, find some hope. 
Jesus gets to the man's house, and he brings with him Peter and James and John. And they show up, and there are people mourning, as you would expect. Jesus tells the mourners, do not weep. She's not dead, but sleeping. And they laugh at him because that seems like the silliest statement to make. Jesus, of course she is dead. We know what dead looks like, and she's dead. Jesus knows this girl is dead. But for him, that is never the end of the story. He has everyone leave, takes everyone out of the room, because this is not a show for everyone to see. This is not about being a spectacle. This moment that Jesus is stepping into is a moment of God showing grace to a grieving father and mother. It is a moment of God showing Peter and James and John the power and authority of himself. It is a moment of Jesus proving that death does not have the final say, but God does. It's a moment of showing hope for the hopeless. And so we see in verse 54, taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that, someone, that something should be given to her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Child, arise. Arise is wake up. It's, it's not be resurrected. It's not come back from the dead. He says to her, child, wake up. Have life. Jesus in this moment does what, his par- what her parents had done for her hundreds of times before. They wo- he woke her up from a deep sleep. Jesus is staring death in the face. Death, this unbeatable enemy of human existence. This thing that rips us from our loved ones and brings pain and sadness everywhere it goes. Jesus, by and through the power that only he possesses, takes this little girl by the hand and lifts her right up through death. Because if Christ has you by the hand, death itself is nothing more than sleep. Moments where all hope seems to be lost and gone, Jesus restores hope. And so the little girl gets up. She's walking. She's eating. See, Jesus didn't just bring her back to life, back to the sickness, back to the illness. No, he restores her life fully and completely. Everyone in the room was amazed. That word is out of their minds, overcome, couldn't process, didn't have the space in their brains to process what they actually just saw. That is the power of God at work. Two situations of seeming hopelessness, an unhealable disease that isolated and wrecked a woman's life, a dead little girl, her parents' lives in shambles, hopeless, darkness, sadness. Jesus steps into these moments and he brings hope and light and joy. This is the good news of the gospel, that nothing is beyond the power of God. Nothing is beyond the control of God, his influence and his ability to act. And because he is compassionate, he sees us in our hurt. He sees us in our pain. He sees us in our darkness, in our hopelessness. And he steps into those moments. These moments that we think are a lost cause. And he says, watch me, trust me, believe me. In the musical Les Miserables, Jean Valjean, the protagonist, at one point is told that uh, another man has been arrested in his place. It's a case of mistaken identity, and he wrestles with the idea, what do I do now? Because if I let this man stay in prison and suffer, they think he is me, I can go about living my life, I can go about free, I've cultivated this whole brand new identity, and I can continue living into that, but how could I possibly live with myself knowing that he was suffering in my place? But if I speak up, 
then I go back to prison. And as he's wrestling with it, he has this realization, and he says, my soul belongs to God, I know. I made that bargain long ago. He gave me hope when hope was gone. He gave me strength to journey on. See, when everything looks dark and broken and hopeless, the gospel is hope for the hopeless. Because it took the worst of situations. It took our eternal damnation in hell, suffering for our sins, and he makes a new way by Jesus dying on the cross in our place for our sins, suffering the wrath of God that we deserve. And because of that, gives us a new life and new relationship with God. The gospel is a light in the darkness, and the gospel is hope for the hopeless. And the gospel is inclusion for the outcast. I want you to flip one more time. We're going to go to Luke 19. That's where we're going to finish up today. Luke 19, just a couple of pages over. Starting in verse 1. He, Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. Behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to that place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Some of us grew up and know this story, or at least know of, Zacchaeus, he's a tax collector. It says he is rich, and for some of us, we know he was a wee little man. As a tax collector, that means that he worked for Rome, which made you disliked and hated by the Jewish people. Interestingly, his name means righteous one. He was a Jewish man, and that's why he got the gig, because the Romans would often hire Jews because they felt it was easier for fellow Jews to get the tax money from the citizens. On top of that, the real way you made yourself rich as a tax collector was by cheating people out of their money. The basic rule was if you were a tax collector for Rome, Rome said you need to give us this amount. Everything else you take in, we don't care about. You can keep it for yourself. So the fact that he was rich means he was probably also a cheat. I mean, right there in verse 7, he was known as a sinner. It is no secret that he was a bad guy. It is public knowledge the kind of man Zacchaeus was. And even though he was a bad guy, even though he had this about him, when he heard Jesus was coming, he wanted to see for himself. Did he really live up to the hype? Did he really live up to the stories? Was the reputation worth all of this hoopla? So he climbs into a tree so he could spot Jesus because he wanted to see. He wanted to observe Jesus. He was interested, but he wasn't looking to ask for anything. He he just wanted to see. He was interested in Jesus, but on his terms, at his distance, with him in control. I'm going to keep him just far enough away. I, I want to I have some kind of eye on him, but I want to be in control of the situation. I want it safe and clean. I don't want it too personal. 
But again, that's not how Jesus works. Jesus sees the man up in a tree, even in the midst of this crowd. And Jesus didn't wait for Zacchaeus to say something or ask him for something. He looks up and he calls out to Zacchaeus by name. Jesus was intentional in this moment. Hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Zacchaeus, we got business to attend to. This was not a chance meeting. Jesus is doing something important. And it says Zacchaeus received him joyfully. Oh, look at me. The celebrity teacher wants to spend time at whose house? My house. He wants to come spend time with me. Look at that. You can all say what you want about me, but Jesus wants to hang out with me. But you see, Jesus was doing much more than just getting a meal. Jesus is saying, Zacchaeus, I want to have a relationship with you. I want to spend time with you because in those days, at that time, the most intimate thing you could do was to share a meal with someone. To be welcomed into someone's house, that is a level of intimacy and relationship that didn't just happen by happenstance. It was intentional. It was designed. It was personal. And the people understood this. They grumble in verse 7. Why would Jesus want to go spend time with him? I can't believe he wants to share a meal with that guy. Doesn't Jesus know the kind of person Zacchaeus is? Yes. Yes, of course he does. It's why he calls Zacchaeus. It's why he wants to have a meal with him. It's why he wants to have a relationship with him. And it's why he wants to have a relationship with us. Because he loves us. Because he has compassion for us. And he knows we need him. And we see verses 8, 9, and 10, and that happens in Zacchaeus' house. And we don't know what the meal looked like or how long it happened. But at one point, Zacchaeus stands up and declares his repentance. He declares that he wants to make a change. Was it his good works that saved him? No. This declaration by Zacchaeus is the result of faith in Jesus. These actions he decides to take to pay back what he has taken from people are the result of a relationship with Jesus. A heart change has happened in this man. See, Jesus loves you right where you are, but he loves you too much to leave you there. When you seek after Jesus, he will always show up. Whenever Jesus meets us, whenever salvation happens, there's always a change in our lives, a change in our heart. If you consider yourself a Christian, but you haven't seen your heart changed, your desires changed, ask yourself, have you really placed your faith in Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection alone? Is it in him and him alone that you find your peace and salvation and hope and rest? Or is it him plus something else? Because if it's him plus something else, it's not ever actually really in him. Jesus says in verse 5, I must stay at your house. Why? He told us in verse 10. Because Jesus is on a mission to seek and to save. While Zacchaeus was the one who ran ahead and climbed into the tree, it was Jesus really seeking out Zacchaeus. Well, it was Zacchaeus who hosted Jesus in his house. It was really Jesus who was the host. He was the one serving and caring for Zacchaeus. Someone like Zacchaeus was hated and disliked everywhere he went. His fellow Jews would despise him because of the job he, he did. And the Romans would treat him as second class. He was nothing more than a means to an end. Though he was rich, it only took him so far. But the gospel is an invitation of inclusion for the outcast. It is an invitation of inclusion to the rejected, to the despised, to the hated, to the forgotten, to the ignored, to the sinner. He says, there's a place for you. Jesus calls Zacchaeus by name. I see you, Zacchaeus. I know you. Come down and have a relationship with me. Brothers and sisters, you are known by God. You are seen 
by God. He hasn't forgotten you or lost track of you or ignored you or misplaced you. He sees you. He sees you in that tree trying to keep him at a distance and engage with him on your own terms. He sees you like a good shepherd sees the sheep that's lost and wandering and aimless and scared and tired. He sees you like the father of the prodigal son watching his son return home weighed down with guilt and shame and self-loathing and fear. He sees you for who you were. He sees you for who you are. And if you will let him, he sees you for who he has made you to be. And like Jesus calling Zacchaeus out of that tree, like the good shepherd who goes and picks up that lost sheep and carries him home, like the father who runs to the son to welcome him back, Jesus today wants you to know that he wants you. He wants a relationship with you. He wants you to know him better, and he wants to know you better. This is the gospel message that God came to earth to make a way to offer a new relationship between us and him. We couldn't do it. We couldn't earn it. We couldn't make it happen. So God decided he would do it. He would make it happen. Through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, the way has been made. The bridge has been built. The fear, the worry, the guilt, the shame, sin, all of it has been taken care of by Christ at the cross. All the reasons, all the excuses, all the barriers, the things you think you are keeping you from a relationship with him, none of them are more powerful than the cross of Jesus Christ. In James 4, 6, James says he gives more grace. No matter your struggle, no matter your sin, no matter the sin that has been committed against you, there's more grace to be had. There's more room at the table. There's more room in the family picture of God. There's more God to go around. The gospel is the good news that regardless of your background, age, race, financial standing, education, experience, none of it excludes you. None of it can keep you from the love of God through Jesus Christ. As Paul says in Romans 8, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing, not a thing. If you come looking for Jesus, he will show up. And nothing you have done, are doing, will do, can stop him from loving you, forgiving you, and welcoming you into the family of God. You can't out God's grace, guys. The gospel is for all people, and that always was the plan that a light of revelation would be sent not just to the Jews but to the Gentiles, not just for the righteous and the good people, but the unrighteous, the undeserving. Isaiah said it hundreds of years before. Simeon knew it when he was holding that baby boy. Paul knew it and reminded of the people in Acts 13. Light had come into the darkness to illuminate and show a better way had arrived. The gospel is light in the darkness and hope for the hopeless. When nothing seems right, when everything seems wrong and broken, when things seem shattered beyond repair, when we are dead in our trespasses and sins, God makes a way. God fixes and restores and reconciles and forgives. Jesus is the hope. The gospel is the assurance of a better future. It's grounded in the past and it affects our present. It proves something better is coming because Christ died on the cross and that matters for us here and now. The gospel is inclusion for the outcast. You aren't too broken. You haven't sinned too much. You aren't too far gone. You aren't out of his reach or beyond his abilities. He's got you, and this morning he is calling you and inviting you into his family.
If you will admit your need for a Savior, believe that Jesus is the Son of God who died on the cross for your sins in your place and choose him to be Savior and King of your life, he will welcome you in, not as a rebel and enemy, but as a son or daughter. This is why the church grows and explodes in the book of Acts. This is why millions upon millions have put their faith in this good news message. This is why we gather. This is why we live different, because we've been made different, because we've been made new. The gospel is light in the darkness. It is hope for the hopeless. It is inclusion for the outcast. It is joy. It is peace. It is good, good news for all people. Let's pray. God, you are good. And when we open your book and we come to your word, we are reminded of who you are. We're reminded of your goodness, your grace, your mercy, your kindness, your justice. Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it challenges us. Sometimes it hurts to be reminded of how good you are and how much we stray away from your goodness. But when we have these opportunities to just sit and be reminded of who you are, to sit in the joy, to sit in the remembrance of your love and mercy, God is overwhelming at times. There's not enough hours left in our lifetime, in all of lifetime to fully and truly communicate and explain and give back the thanks that we have for you. God, this gospel message of light and hope and inclusion and forgiveness, Lord, I pray that for those who know it, for those who believe it, that we would continuously rediscover it, that we would continuously re-remind ourselves, that we would continuously come back to it, that that would be the thing that drives us every day, every moment, every interaction. God, help us to keep it on the forefront of our brains, on the tips of our tongues. And for those who have not put their faith in Christ, Lord, I pray that today is that day, that today is that day that the Holy Spirit does what only he can do and illuminate and call them to new life. That today is that day where they would put their faith in you. God, we thank you for all of the ways that you show up, all of the ways that you reveal yourself to us. Especially in the clarity of your revelation to us and sending your son to die for us. God, you have made us to be the lights of the world. You have made us to go and point people toward you. And that is exhausting and overwhelming in this world. And so, Lord, we know that you send us with the Holy Spirit. Remind us of that fact. And as we step into these moments that you have appointed, give us the words, give us the boldness, give us even the, the steps to take. God, we thank you for sending your son to die for us. We thank you for this message of the gospel. May we never lose sight of it. May we never ignore it. May we treasure it now and forever. Amen.